I want to start by telling you a quick story about a book that was written. And actually, I got this from uh, another book called The Perfect Ending, uh, written by Robert Jeffers. It's a fantastic book. I would highly recommend it if, uh, if you haven't read it or seen it. And we're going to talk a little bit. Some of the things are going to come from that book now. But one of them is uh, he talks about a book that was written uh, called The Wreck of the Titan, not Titanic. He dropped the IC on the end. It's called The Wreck of the Titan. Now, when I tell you what this book says in there, you're going to think it seems a little bit familiar. Compared to the Titanic, the book was written about the maiden voyage of this boat, the Titan. Now, wasn't the Titanic on its maiden voyage? Yep. It, the ship left from Southampton, England to New York City. Sound familiar? Same places. It struck icebergs in the middle of Atlantic, and it sank in the middle of Atlantic. Sounds real familiar, right? Uh, they had a triple screw boat, which means there were three motors and three props on the back. And so just like the Titanic, it held 3,000 people, just like the Titanic. Here's the major differences. The Titan was 1,800 feet long. The Titanic was 1,882 feet long. The Titan displaced 66,000 tons of water, which means when you drop the boat in the water, how much water is pushed away from it. 66,000 tons of the Titan, 70,000 with the Titanic. So you sit there and say, how ridiculous. I mean, if I'm going to read a fictional book, a book that's not true, and it's so close to the one on the Titanic, why wouldn't I just read about the Titanic and get the true history? But the one thing that we always talk about in Bible study is keeping the Bible in context. In order for us to get the proper interpretation, the context has to be right. And what I didn't tell you about this book is that this book was written 14 years before the Titanic. And so you may look at it and say, how did they know that? Was it, was it possible maybe God gave a warning? Who knows? We don't really know. But it's pretty interesting that all these facts and figures actually came true 14 years ago. So uh, that kind of leads us into one of the things I'm going to talk about today. I'm actually going to have three different, um, three different kind of uh, things, points, if you will. The first one is prophecy, and is it important to God? And the second one being prophecy, uh, Israel has to play a part in that because Israel's a big part of the prophecy that's going to take place. So the second part's going to be a brief history of how Israel started where it is today. And the last part is going to be what does the Bible say is going to take place from here forward. Okay, so it's going to be three parts. That's why this little thing's important for you to have. We'll be using that toward the end. And I'll probably be using my handy, dandy little pointer that I bought. I'm all proud of myself, the little laser thing. Can you see it back there at all? Oh, yeah. These are the kind of remotes I like. Just one button. Just push it. Works perfect for me. Okay. So, uh, why is it that a lot of... Teachers, preachers, uh, church leaders, they don't like to talk about prophecy. They, they, 
they, I don't know if they're, what their deal is with it, but they kind of poo-poo it like it's no big deal. And to me, you know, they give these, these are probably the four most common reasons that you'll hear why a teacher or a preacher doesn't talk about prophecy. One is they'll tell you it's too confusing. It's just way too confusing. And in a lot of ways, it's true. It is tough to understand. If anyone, any, anyone in here ever heard that term, let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? And a lot of people have heard that term. And when it comes to prophecy, there's probably more of that going on than any other type of uh, subject in the Bible. You really have to look back and forth, back and forth from this book to that book and know the history in order to get it right. So it can be confusing if you don't do that. Another thing they'll tell you is, hey, Christ even says he doesn't know when he's coming back. Only the Father knows when he's coming back. So, and that may be true, but we'll also see that Christ tells us to watch for the signs. So we may know the season, but he says we don't know the day or the hour. So we need to pay attention, and we'll get into that more. Uh, another thing they'll say is there's so many different interpretations well, you know, that may be true in the sense that we don't always know the proper interp interpretation. I can't tell you how many times since I've been going through reading and studying on things like Revelation and, and uh, Matthew 24 and 25 that Josh preached on last week or uh, Daniel, different things like that, different books that have a lot of prophecy in them, that God has opened my eyes to things, that I believed one thing before and then God opens my eyes to, to another truth of it. So the truth of the matter is there's only one interpretation. We just don't always have it right. And that's why we need to study to get it right. The other one that people say is it has nothing to do with everyday life. So what does it matter? Just keep going on, you know, singing around this campfire, kumbaya, and we'll all be happy. Um, but I got to tell you, I believe it's... None of those four things that it's not preached for. I believe it's laziness. I believe a lot of times uh, people don't want to take the time, and I mean preachers and stuff don't want to take the time to actually learn about it and teach their people about it because it's hard. It's not an easy thing to, to teach, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about Josh. He takes the hard subjects too. He never takes the lazy way out. And so... And I'll admit, it is exhausting. We've been doing, in our Bible studies, we've been doing Revelation, then we did the God and Government, we did Daniel, we did Perfect Ending, a bunch of these different things. And I have to admit, I get exhausted because it's draining. It's a lot of prep, a lot of, it just seems like a lot of attacks happen during it too. And so um, I said in these last ones, our, our Bible study on Wednesday night and Thursday night, I said, I'm taking a little break from all the prophecy. I'm going to do Esther on Wednesday night and Mark on Thursday night, and it's going to give me a break. And then when Josh said he wanted to take today off, um, and I volunteered to be the one to preach, what did God lay in my heart? Prophecy. <laughs> it's like, come on, God, I need a little break here. But anyhow, we're going we're gonna to hopefully learn some good stuff, and, uh, and, and it's good. So... Um, first question I'm going to ask is, is prophecy important to God? I mean, we want to study and learn whatever it is that God thinks is important. Would you all agree with that? All right. So if for those of you who have been reading the Bible a while or in church for a while, 
Would you agree that if God repeats something, if he says something and then repeats it, he means business on it? It's something he wants us to focus on. Let me give you an example. We have uh, 1 John 1.9 as a common scripture that, that if you've been in church for a while, you, you, you're familiar with this scripture, and it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay? He's speaking to believers here. Now, we don't pay much attention to verse 8 before it or verse 10 after it. But verse 8, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's telling us, don't try to say you're not a sinner. Because the truth isn't in you if you're saying that. Then he goes to verse 9 again. And then he jumps to verse 10, repeats verse 8, but with a little more intensity. He says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out, meaning God, out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So we're not going to preach on that subject. My point is he repeats it twice. Do you think he's serious about it? You think he wants to make sure that we know that we have sin? Otherwise, we wouldn't know we need Christ, right? So he repeats it twice. He's serious about it. So I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you six quick things that, in my opinion, help prove that God says prophecy is very important for us to know. The first one is it's a major theme in the Bible. And if you don't believe that, this list of things, by the way, I also got from that book, Perfect Ending. So I haven't researched him, but I do trust Robert Jeffers. He's a very, very good pastor, does a lot of research. But he says more than 25% of the Bible is predictive prophecy. That's over a quarter of the Bible is predictive prophecy, not two verses, over a quarter of the Bible. Old Testament has more than 1,800 references to Christ's return. 1,800. Now, I was thinking about this was This was a Garrett thing that popped in my head. That's one prophecy for every foot of the Titanic. Okay? That's a lot of prophecies. <laughs> Shows about where my brain is at, too, right? <clears throat> of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, over 300 references to Christ's return. That's more than one reference per chapter in the New Testament. Actually, it comes to one out of every 30 verses. The other thing is 23 of the 27 New Testament books give prominence to this subject. That's also a lot. And for every one, this one blew my mind when I first heard it when I read his book. For every prophecy of Christ's first coming, there's eight prophecies of his second coming. Now, here's a thing where he says nobody knows what it is. We're not supposed to pay attention. But why would he give eight times as many prophecies if it wasn't important to him? It's definitely important to him. So the first thing is it's a major theme in the Bible. Second thing is understanding prophecy helps us to interpret and apply the Bible properly. I want to give you an example. We're going to use Isaiah 65.20. Isaiah 65.20 says, Never again will there be in, in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth, 
and he who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. Now, very often that verse, I'll hear people say it's one of two things. Some people say that's heaven, no more infant death, people living past 100. But I got a couple questions for you. In heaven, do you die? No. In heaven, is there death, period? No. In heaven, are you ever accursed? No. So it can't be heaven. So then I'll have people say, well, it's today. Because with technology, people can live longer. And, uh, but I also have to ask the question, how many people live to be over 100? Besides Phil's mom. How old was she when she died? 108 years old, Phil's mom was. Imagine that. And we all go, ooh, ah. Why? Because 100 years old is not something we hit all the time. Most of us in this room will not hit 100 years old. So it can't be referring to today. And without getting into all sorts of detail on it, it's talking about the millennium. And in the millennium that happens, we're going to show a chart in the end. We're going to go through that in the last part of my message. Um, but So understanding prophecy helps us interpret the Bible properly. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus says it's important. How do I know? Uh, and again, Josh preached on this last week, but one of the things that Josh uh, brought up is that when the uh, disciples were with Jesus in the temple, right, they were admiring the temple and talking how beautiful it was and all this, and Jesus goes and bursts their bubble, and he says, I tell you, all these stones, not one will be in place after this. This place is going to be torn down. They're like in shock, right? And we don't see their expressions, but we can only imagine what they are. And he says, and they said, well, when is this going to take place? And Jesus says, oh, you don't need to worry about that. Just me and the Father, we know we'll take care of it. Peter, go light up the grill. James, go grab some burgers and hot dogs. And you guys just don't worry about that stuff. Is that what he said? No. As a matter of fact, when the disciples ask Jesus questions, very often he'll give answers with a couple verses, a couple lines, maybe a paragraph. Sometimes he might give a parable or maybe even a couple paragraphs. But when they asked him this question, he gave them two chapters of things to watch for and how we would know when the, when the end times are coming. So it was serious and, and important to Jesus. Also, it motiv motiv should motivate us toward godly living. 2 Peter 3.10 says, uh, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live lives holy and godly. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So it ought to motivate us to live in a way pleasing to the Lord. The fifth thing is it motivates us towards sharing the gospel. If we know what's coming, we should be more motivated to share the gospel. How many people, and I don't know if Josh brought up this example in the second sermon last week, but the first sermon, how many people were here and heard him talk about at the bedside of a man who died? 
And I've never been next to someone who died, and you hear lots of different stories, but it blew my mind when he was talking about how the guy was saying, Brother Josh, help me. My feet are on fire. My legs are on fire. My arms are on fire. My body's on fire. And then, boom, he was gone. If that's not a motivator for us to get out there and tell people about Jesus and do our best to get people to turn their hearts toward him, I don't know what is. I mean, that just hit me, and I haven't really been able to let go of it since then. The last thing is, if you look at the, the number six, the last thing is Revelation. It's the only book that I'm aware of where it actually talks about you're blessed when you read it and when you apply it. So starting from Revelation 1.3, and, and by the way, I don't, I don't want you to think that you're not going to be blessed when you read the other books of the Bible. It's all God's word. Read it all. You will be blessed by all of it. But he specifically says in Revelation twice. He starts with Revelation 1.3. It says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, that word that people are afraid of, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. That's the very beginning of Revelation. Let's go to the end of Revelation 22.7, the last chapter of Revelation. This is actually Jesus speaking, and he says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Again, using the prophecy, again talking about the book of Revelation. Um, as a matter of fact, we often hear quoted about not adding to or, or deleting from God's word and I believe that's true in all of God's word. We're not to change it. It's his word, and it is unchanging. But I do believe that in these last couple of verses in Revelation, the end of Revelation, John is talking about the book of Revelation here. Again, not that it gives us right to change anything else in the Bible, but I do believe he's specifically talking about Revelation here. So let's go to those verses. It's Revelation 22, 18, and 19. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the, of the prophecy, again, using that word, of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So if we go through all those things, I hope that you would agree with me that it's very important for God for us to read and do our best to understand, asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand prophecy and what is to come and to watch for the signs. I'm going to ask a question because this is a convicting question to me also, but if Christ came back now, are we ready? And what I mean by are we ready is God creates each one of us for a purpose. Have you accomplished that purpose? Or have you put him on the sideline and done your own thing while he's waiting for you to do what he wants you to do? And again, that's convicting to me, too, because I know there are plenty of times I do that. I put him on the sideline, tell him I'll come get him when I need him and when I'm ready. But in the meantime, I got things to do and places to go. And that's not the right attitude. 
And I, I hope that we're all kind of convic- convicted on that. So get, saying all that and showing the importance of prophecy now leads us to the second part of the message, which is about Israel. And how did Israel start? And where is it today? And how did it get there? And where is it going to go? And I believe it's so important, especially right now, with everything going on in Israel. As you know, if you, if you don't know, then you haven't turned on the news in a while, but there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, so I want to start with uh, <clears throat> where was the promise and who was the promise to to even start this country called Israel? Um, it was given by God to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1, 3, 1 through 3, I should say, says the Lord had said to Abram, which is Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That great nation that he's talking about is Israel. Okay? And he says, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. So I got a question for you. When Israel's in a battle like this, that they're going on with the Palestinians, with Hamas and Hezbollah, and all these countries that hate them, Iran, Iraq, Turkey wants to get involved, Egypt. Um, Question, based on that scripture, whose side should we be on? Israel. If we don't want to be cursed, then we better not be on the opposing side of Israel. And on the the second part of this says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So he starts with a nation, but expands it to all people on earth will be blessed. All those, as we see when we get to the New Testament, who, who give their heart to Christ, God's son, will be blessed. So God makes this promise to Abraham. But now Abraham and Sarah, they're getting up there in age. Sarah's about 75 years old. Abraham's about 85 years old. I don't want a raise of hands for many of you women in here, but if there's any women in here that are approximately 75 years old, um, I don't know how you feel about all of a sudden getting pregnant and starting to raise another family at this age. Probably not the first thing on your mind, if I had to guess. Am I right? Yes, I hear a few yeses. So there's a few people in that that age group. Um, So Abraham and Sarah decide they're going to do their own little thing. And Sarah comes up with this idea, Abraham, sleep with my maidservant. Her name's Hagar. Have a child with her. We'll own the kid because slaves are owned their property of the, of the uh, slave owners. We'll own the kid. We'll raise him, and that's the plan. Well, that wasn't God's plan. God says, no, no, that's not the plan. So anyhow, Abraham sleeps with Hagar, and after that happens, Sarah starts having this these regrets, and she starts to get upset. She gets upset with Abraham. I always get a kick out of this because it was Sarah's idea, and then she starts ragging on Abraham for doing it. So Abraham says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. He says, get rid of her. Get her out of here. So they send her away. She's sitting by a, 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 I was going to say a stream, but I'm down here in the south, so she's sitting by a, a creek, right? Is that sitting by the creek, and an angel appears to her. And in, uh, 
uh, Genesis 16, 9 through 20. It says, Then the angel of the Lord told her, meaning Hagar, Go back to your mistress, which is Sarah, and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child. So she didn't know she was pregnant until then. You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He, meaning Ishmael, will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hands against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Ishmael was the father of the Arabs. All the Arab nations came from Ishmael. It clearly shows in this verse here that he's going to be in hostility toward his brothers. Who were his brothers? The Jews. He's going to be in hostility to them. They're going to be against everybody, and everybody's going to be against them. So if we go a little bit further, because one of the arguments that we see right now uh, watching what's going on in Israel is people who are backing Palestinians and Hamas are also, uh, they're talking about how uh, the Muslims say that Moses said that Ishmael's the chosen one. Well, I want to remind you as we read these things, because they follow Moses, the Muslims too. I want to remind you that what we're reading is Genesis, written by who? Moses. Moses wrote this. So let's go to uh, verse uh, chapter 17. It says, Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. This is God speaking to Abraham after they goofed up and, and, uh, and tried their own plan. This was several years later. Ishmael's a teenager by that time. And he says, you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. It doesn't say with Ishmael. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Everlasting, not a temporary one, an everlasting covenant. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my, remember what I said, if God says something two or more times, he's serious about it. He repeats it again. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Now, again, I mean, all you ladies who are around 75 years old that didn't want to have another kid, she's 89 years old at this point and about to become pregnant. And he's 99 years old and about to be a dad again. So that's how uh, 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 Israel started in terms of the promise, the covenant. Isaac ends up having a son, two, uh, twins actually, Jacob and Esau, Jacob ends up being the head of the 12 tribes of Israel, which we're not going to get a lot into any of that stuff uh, today. But what I did want to show you is where the name Israel came from. If we can go to Genesis 32, 22 through, through 28, it says that, and this, by the way, was when Esau, Jacob and Esau were, uh, 
they, they, they didn't really get along because Jacob stole the birthright in a sense over a cup of soup, some Campbell's soup that he made or something. And anyhow, uh, Esau couldn't stand him and actually wanted to kill him for doing it. They hadn't seen each other in years, and Jacob found out that Esau was coming his way with 400 men. So he was all panicked. So what he did is he sent his wives and his family and his animals and everything off in front of him just in case he wipes them out. I guess he could run the other way. I'm not sure. But anyhow, he does, and he ends up getting in this wrestling match. This is where this, this verse starts. It says, That night Jacob woke up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. There's a lot of questions as to who this man is, if it's really a man or an angel or God. Uh, we're not going to get into that. But he says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. By the way, Jewish people to this day will not eat the hip off from uh, 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 beef bone, whatever you want to call it, cow, because of that. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. So this is where the name Israel comes from. It's Jacob's name. If you look at a lot of the land back then, it was named after people, the patriarch of it, if you will. That's where Israel came from, is from Jacob's name. And we'll see it's his 12 sons that are the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, it's not completely his 12 sons, but again, we won't get into that tonight either. So too many other things to talk about. So that's how Israel started, Okay. And that's where it came from. From that point on, Jacob and his family, they never actually got to really inhabit that land and call it their own. Because a famine came in, Jacob's son Joseph went off to Egypt. If you haven't read the story, it's a great story, read it. And the whole family followed him over there. And for 400, roughly 400 years, they were in Egypt. That nation didn't really become uh, Israel until after Moses died, and Joshua went into the promised land and took over all these different areas. There were ups and downs through Israel's history. When they'd follow God, they'd gain more land. When they'd walk away from God, they'd lose land to other countries. It went back and forth forever until we come to Jesus. In Jesus' time, when he mentioned about the temple, uh, Rome was in charge of Israel. They were the world power. Okay, and so uh, when Jesus mentioned to the disciples that this temple was going to be torn down, that happened in 70 A.D., only 30-some-odd years after Christ ascended back to heaven, a little under 40 years. Uh, Israel obviously lost that battle. Israel regathered itself over many years to come, 60, 65 years, and they had another big battle. They tried to overthrow Rome again in 132 A.D., from 132 to 135 A.D., and Israel got wiped out. 
What they did is the Israelites, there were still some alive, but they scattered them all over the place. Israel was no longer a nation. It was gone. They were, had little communities and villages and little townships all over the known world back then, but Israel itself was no longer there. Until Ezekiel 36 and 37 and I didn't give you those. Don't worry about that. <laughs> so, um, Ezekiel 36 and 37, the chapters, talks about how Israel will become a nation again. It's a prophecy that it talks about in there. And so, sure enough, in 1947, the UN actually approved uh, kind of like dividing up the land there between the Palestinians and the Israelites. And that would never happen today because the UN hates Israel. They can't stand Israel. There's more charges against Israel by the U.N. than any other country that's a part of the U.N. And it's a little teeny country. And uh, so in 1947, the U.N. approves it. By 1948, Israel was a nation again. And what happened then? Immediately, the Arabs declared war on Israel. And they again been battling ever since that's been going on. I'm not going to go through all the different things of that, but the biggest one I can think of that probably most people are a little bit aware of is the Six-Day War in 1967. Israel was supposed to have get annihilated, and they didn't. They not only won, they got the West Bank, and they got the Gaza Strip back. So we're going to show a, a map of, of Israel, and I'll get to use my little handy-dandy pointer now. If you look at this map, this is basically the map back in the time of uh, uh, the Israelites once Joshua crossed into the promised land. They broke it up into 12 tribes, 12 sons of Israel. If you notice, here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan River. Here's the Sea of Galilee, which Jesus did most of his ministry work around that. But look at all the land over here that is owned by Israel. Two and a half of the tribes, as they call it, the half tribe of Manasseh, because half of it's over here. It was a huge tribe. And then Gad and then Reuben. They're all on the east side of the Jordan. That's the land that God said Israel could have. Let's take a look at what the land is today. Okay, this one's a little harder to see because the colors don't pop as much on it. But if you look at it, here again is the uh, Sea of Galilee. Here's the Jordan River. And here's the Dead Sea. If you notice, none of this land east of it is owned by Israel anymore. It's all owned by Jordan. As a matter of fact, this right here, this West Bank, this chunk of land going right around here, is also mostly occupied by Jordan now, not Israel. And to give you an idea of how small Israel actually is, see this little, from, from the Mediterranean, which is right here, to the edge of this West Bank is about nine miles. That's it. How many people here come from Morristown? Anybody in here from Morristown? I got one hand up. Any more? I got another hand over there. Anyone from Knoxville? All right, another hand here. Okay. And, oh, back here. That's right. These guys too. Uh, if you're, when you drive home 
you're going to drive farther to get home than it would take to go from the edge of the West Bank that Jordan occupies to the Mediterranean that Israel has. It's teeny. It's a small country, which is another thing that blows me away because you look at it and think, it's such a small country, and yet all these enemies around it, and they can't wipe it out. If God's hand isn't in it, I don't know what is. So I also believe, quite honestly, oh, by the way, the Gaza Strip, too. If you look, there's the Gaza Strip where all the problem with Hamas is coming from that little area. And what started that was in 2005, Israel thought they'd be nice guys, and they would give the Palestinians a piece of land, hoping that the Palestinians would then leave them alone. They could have peace between them all, and everything would go well. they give it to them. A year later, in 2006, the Palestinians elect Hamas in as their government, and the rest is history. They've been sending rockets over, backed by Iran ever since then, and then, of course, we know what happened with this latest one. I believe that one of the biggest issues Israel has had is they have not been uh, really following God and, and His Savior, but they've allowed too much land that God has given them to be given away to others. There's no peace with Hamas. Hamas wants Israelites and Christians and Americans dead, period. That's it. End of story. And they won't be happy until we're dead. Look at their Quran, uh, the Koran. You will see that. So um, if you look, I, want, I just want to show this scripture because I just feel like it's so fitting for today. Isaiah 5.20. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter sweet and sweet for bitter. If that's not what's going on today, how can people cheer in the streets for a country that is actually killing little babies, raping women, doing all these horrific things that just, we can't even wrap our minds around them. But that's what's happening right now. We're calling evil good and good evil. And we shouldn't be. We need to pay paying attention to, to the good Lord here. All right, on that, we're going to move into the third part of the message. Some of you are probably cheering, saying, all right, that means we're finally able to get out of here soon. I didn't say that. I just said we're moving into the third part. Anyhow, uh, this is where I want you to pull your little chart out. Everybody got the little chart? Pull that little chart out. <clears throat> and we're going to get that up on the screen if we can. There it is. That looks beautiful. Good job. Okay. Uh, if you look, this is a timeline. I've seen a lot of timelines of Revelation where they really get into a lot of detail. Some of them are really, really good. But I'll be honest with you, if you're not real familiar with Revelation, it can be overwhelming. It can be like you just put it aside, you don't know what's going on. What I love about this one is it's very basic, it's to the point, it hits all the highlights, and it's easy to look at it and figure out. This was also taken from that book by Robert Jeffers, uh, Perfect Ending. So some of the people that have been in my study, they're familiar with this, and they've all commented to me and walked in, oh, I know where you're going with this, Garrett. I know where you're going. Anyhow, if you look, the start of that timeline starts at the cross. And the cross is, uh, uh, leads us into the church age. Now, to be specific, there's, 
There's some debate as to exactly when the church age starts. Did it start anyone from the triumphal entry, which is what, Palm Sunday, right? It could be anywhere from there to Christ's ascension back to heaven. Um, We're not going to split hairs on that because it's within two-month period of time. So, but we're going to start at the cross, and if you notice, it shows a loop going up, and that loop going up right there, it says in there, church age. We don't know the time frame of the church age. We're in the church age right now. That's what this is. We're living in the church age. But there's a lot of things that will give us indications of when we may be coming to an end of the church age. Now, one of the things that, that we're told a lot and very often we're blamed by, uh, by Hollywood or, or we're blamed by politicians or we're blamed by, excuse me, professors or, uh, you know, news media, whatever, that we are causing all these, uh, these natural disasters to happen because of something we've done as man. Uh, and I... I struggle with that because I feel like that gives man way too much credit and too much power. It's almost a little arrogant to think that's the case. And so, especially when they tell me the earth is warming, but they tell me that ice covered all over this before, it warmed once before. So I don't know if cars did that one too, but anyhow, the point is, I think there's a different explanation for it. And Jesus talked, uh, Jesus, uh, Josh wouldn't like that, Josh said last week, Josh said he talked about birthing pains, if anyone remembers that. I want to talk a little bit more about birthing pains because I believe that's what's going on right now. For you women that have had babies, you know what a birthing pain is. And what happens is, because I remember my wife going through it, you get your first contraction, right? And and. What I've been told, because I obviously I can't have a baby, but uh, is that it feels like a very strong, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, my mind's blank. Anyhow, the contraction, like a, like a spasm or like a uh, uh, ch- Charlie or a cramp. Who said cramp? There you go. That's the word I was looking for, that hard, multi-syllable word, cramp. It looks like a cramp, feels like a cramp, but when it first starts, it's intense, but not as intense as it's going to be. And then 30 minutes later, you get another one. Then maybe 25 minutes later, you get another one. It's a little more intense. And next thing you know, you're having them every two minutes, and they're real intense. By this point, I remember when my wife went into labor the first time, I never knew how strong she was until she grabbed me and got me in a bear hug. You ever see those little rubber frogs where you squeeze them and the eyeballs pop up? That's what I felt like. I'm like, wow, I ain't messing with her. She's tough. But anyhow, so that's how intense these contractions get. That's what a birthing pain is. And when we look at people are saying the natural disasters are becoming more intense and they're happening more frequently, well, yes, because Jesus said it's going to be like birthing pains. That's what's going to happen. The natural disasters are going to be more intense 
and they're going to come more frequently at shorter intervals. That's one of the signs for us to, to be able to see that. I want to read to you uh, uh, Matthew 24, 4 through 8. It says, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. He doesn't want us to panic as believers. He wants us to keep our eyes focused on him. And then it says, um, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. This is what he's letting them know. It's going to become more intense, and it's going to become closer in frequency, too. Um, another point I want to make on this here. Now, there's some differences in belief. Can we go back to that chart again? Thank you. Uh, so here, here, right here, there's some differences of belief as to when the rapture takes place. And I'm not going to sit here and uh, kind of discuss that. Randy's over there smiling. Phil is too. Because they have a different view than I do. I believe we're pre-tribulation, meaning we're raptured right at this point here when tribulation starts. A lot of people believe that it's mid-tribulation where it's right here. Halfway through, tribulation is a seven-year period, and some people believe it happens three and a half years into that point. The point here, though, being is that in order for the rapture to take place, nothing else has to be fulfilled. It, it could happen at any time. It could happen during this message. Some of you are probably praying it will. But then it could happen a thousand years from now. Now, I don't think with technology and greed and all the stuff going on that we have a shot of making it a thousand years, but it could. We don't know. But it seems as if a lot of the things that he told us to watch for are coming about. Um, Francis Chan, uh, my, my wife was uh, listening to a sermon he did or a message that he did, and he came up with a really cool theory that I had never heard of. Now, maybe some of you had, but it really like... Bing, the light bulb went off in my head. I said, this is awesome. <clears throat> you know how with a Sabbath, we're supposed to work six days and rest one, right? With our land, we're supposed to work the land for six years and then rest it for a year. As a matter of fact, uh, God is so serious about us taking a rest that he actually, when the Israelites were taken by Babylon, they were taken for 70 years. Why? They had one year for each year they didn't give the rest to for the Sabbath of the 490 years. The land was not under rest. So it's very important to them. Well, Francis Chan pointed out something, that the earth, if you look at creation, was started, and Ken, we went through this in the uh, uh, Creation Academy, but uh, the earth was started approximately 6,000 years ago. And what do we have coming? A thousand-year millennium where Christ leads, a rest for the land, which also, if he's right, now this is not in the Bible, but it's a cool theory, and it would make sense if you look at God's way of doing things. If that's the case, then we have to be fairly close to 
to that happening because we're again we're about 6000 years from creation now cool thought next thing i just want to touch on real quickly is what is the rapture um, some of you may not be aware that the rapture is first uh, thessalonians 4:13 to 18 says brothers we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep which means die or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, meaning the dead will rise before us. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be the Lord with the Lord forever. Um, a lot of people look at the rapture as a second coming. It's not because he doesn't actually touch ground here. We meet him up in the clouds. The second coming doesn't come until after tribulation. Um, can we go back to that chart again? I'm going to have you bop back and forth on that. Thank you. Uh, so tribulation. Tribulation is a period that is going to be a very, very tough period for people to get through. The start into tribulation is going to be a peace treaty. And that's how we're really, it appears, that's how we're going to know who the Antichrist is. I believe we'll be out of here just before that happens. A few other people in here believe that we're going to hang out for three and a half years and then be out of here. Uh, once it gets really super bad. Um, but either way, that peace treaty is going to mark the, when the Antichrist shows up uh, because he's going to sign a peace treaty, have a peace treaty signed. I hear some people say, look, Armageddon is about to happen because we got all these nations coming in around Israel and everyone threatening us. It's like, no, Armageddon can't happen until after the seven-year tribulation. Armageddon happens at this point. However, the battles, I believe, do have to happen. Let me ask you this quick question. If there was no battles and no wars out there right now, and, all, and the, war, the world was at peace, and all of a sudden some guy comes in and gets these nations to sign a peace treaty, who cares? The world's at peace, Right? However, if all of a sudden the world's falling apart and there's battles everywhere, such as Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran attacking Israel, Turkey wanting to get involved, Egypt wanting to get involved, uh, Russia attacking Ukraine, China talking about, uh, you know, coming in and attacking Taiwan, and, uh, and let's not forget little rocket man in North, in North Korea, he wants to get involved too. If all these things start coming into play, and now somebody comes in, gets them to all agree on a peace treaty, and has peace in the world in terms of battle. Now, would you look at that person a little bit differently? Yeah. And that's how I believe the Antichrist is going to come into the picture. He's going to look like a hero coming in, and he's going to get a lot of followers. Uh, one of the things I hear sometimes, too, is the first three and a half years of tribulation are not going to be bad. No, the second th three and a half will be worse, no doubt about it. We'll read about that in a second. But the, the, the first three and a half are going to be bad, too. Just the word tribulation, 
tribulation, and that's what they call it, the seven-year tribulation. The word means a cause of great trouble or suffering. You know, some people say, oh, I'll wait to give my life to Christ, you know, during the tribulation. Big mistake. If you're going to wait till then, it's going to be a lot harder to come to know the Lord at that time because you're not going to be able to buy, sell, or trade without the mark of the beast. You're going to go hungry. You're going to be martyred for your faith. You're going to be persecuted like we've never seen persecution before. Um, now, the Bible, there's a bunch of different judgments that happen during that tribulation. There's seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. There's seven of each of those. Um, uh, a, a lot of people tend to think that the first two sets of judgments happen in the first part of tribulation, and the bowl judgments start at the beginning of the second part of tribulation, which is called the great tribulation. Um, but, again, not splitting hairs, if you look at any of those judgments, and we're not going to get into them here because we don't have time, there's some serious stuff that goes on, including, uh, you know, half of the world burning up. So it's not going to be peaceful in terms of a pleasant place to live at that time. I would highly recommend, if you haven't made your decision to follow Christ, you want to follow Christ so you don't go through that. I can promise you that. Um, the second half of this, uh, of this tribulation also is when the Antichrist goes into the temple. The temple will be built during this time, rebuilt, and he will go in there and he'll tell everyone to worship him and follow him. And, uh, and, and, and that's when he basically pushes all the other leaders out of the way. He's built himself up enough. He doesn't need them anymore. Um, I want to read Matthew twenty four fifteen to 25 real quickly. Uh, because it actually shows a little bit about how bad it's going to be on that second part. It says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination, which is the Antichrist, that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to his, get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, which is the believers, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So one thing I want to clarify is Satan's going to try to deceive the elect, but he can't, as it says, if that were possible. I don't believe you can lose your salvation ever. Once you're a believer, you can't lose that salvation. Uh, and then what we're going to see here is that at the end of, can we go back to that chart again? Thank you. At, at the end of uh, the tribulation, then uh, there's going to be a big battle known as the Battle of Armageddon. And then the second coming of Christ comes down, and he basically takes care of that pretty quick. The cool thing is all the believers that have died in Christ or were raptured at that point actually come down with Christ. It says we're with him forever, and it shows in there that we will actually be with Christ coming down, which is kind of cool. And so uh, he comes down, he wins, and at this point, 
the false prophet and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, which is hell. But Satan is not yet. Satan is thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us. But he's thrown into the abyss, which is also a place kind of like, you know, torture also there for him. But he's kept there for a thousand years. During this thousand-year time, again, the Antichrist is gone. Satan's in the abyss. This particular time is uh, uh, Christ is the head of that period. And we come down to be with him. Kind of a cool thing to think about here is that, again, as I told you, the people that if they don't live to be 100, they'll consider dying in their youth. That's this period of time when that takes place in the millennium. The amazing thing is all believers are brought up at the rapture, again, wherever you, wherever you uh, think that it happened. But people can still come to the Lord during the tribulation. There will be many people that will be saved during that seven-year period. At the end of this battle of Armageddon, only the believers go into the millennium. And the other believers that were with Christ come down with them. The cool thing is the believers that came down with Christ, we're living for eternity. We don't die. But people in the millennium that came into the millennium from the tribulation will still die. So it's kind of a weird thought to see that we're going to be mixed with immortal people and mortal people during that time period. And so I want to remind everyone, too, the millennium is not, this is not heaven. We're not there yet. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to try to blow through this quickly here, uh, if we can. After a thousand years, this uh, Satan is released, and he's allowed to come up and make another battle against the Lord one more time. So people during this time period can choose not to follow Christ, those that are born during this time period. The ones that come into it from the tribulation and the ones that come into it from coming with Christ, they're going to stay believers. But all the people that are born during this time period, they can choose whether or not to follow Christ. And there will be a ton of them that won't follow Christ because he builds up another army and comes after and comes after uh, uh, Christ. It says here in... Uh, uh, Revelation 27 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In, the, and in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. That's how many people will build up during that thousand-year period. <clears throat> says, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That really should be the part where it says the end, right? But it's not quite there. You couldn't be that lucky. Anyhow, it says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown a thousand years earlier. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What happens then is, can we go back? There we go, thank you. Uh, After that happens, we get what's called the white throne judgment, which is where non-believers are judged. I want to read to you that, uh, but I want to remind you, too, that we Christians, if you've given your heart to Christ, we also are accountable for all the things we've done in our life, too, good or bad. We give an account of everything we've done, good or bad. 
But it's not an accountability that our salvation rests on. That's already sealed. The God has taken care of that. The only thing that, but the, the people that go before the white throne judgment are non-believers, people who decided not to take Jesus' gift. And uh, Revelation 20, 11 uh, through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. A lot of people believe that at this point uh, there is no more heaven and earth. Uh, in P the book of Peter, it talks about it burning up. And uh, we believe that the, at that point that the old heaven and earth is gone and the new heaven and earth is about to come. Uh, and it says, um, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, the book of life is the book that believers' names are in. So if he opens up the book of life and doesn't see your name in there, then he's going to start opening up your book of life and see if you qualify to get into heaven. And it says, uh, it was open, it says, the, uh, which the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, in their books of life. Now, we can look at it and say, I thought we weren't judged by what we did. We're saved by grace. We're talking about non-believers. If someone doesn't come to know Jesus, they've chosen to try to say that they can get into heaven on their own merits. It's not a smart move, but that's what they've chosen to do. And when he goes through and reads all the things that they've done, good or bad, if there's one mistake, which there will be many, they can't get into heaven because God is a perfect God. And the only way to get into heaven is to go in on the coattails of the only one who lived a perfect life, and that's Jesus Christ. If we don't accept Christ, if we don't tell Jesus we want to be part of him, we're not getting into heaven. And that's a scary thought, but it's true. And I don't think we can sugarcoat it anymore. Um, so if you look on this, again, on this, uh, I'm sorry, go back to the verses there. 13, uh, yeah, there we go. Um, it says here, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death, death and Hades are a thing. They're not just a word out there. They're actually a thing. They were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Lake of fire is actually hell. It's different than Hades. Um, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And again, I think it's a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scary thing to think where we could end up if we don't make the right decision. And I guess I have a question for you, and that's, you know, if you're on the fence, if you haven't made a choice as to whether or not you want to give your heart to Christ, I guess my question would be, do you really want to stand at the, white, the great white throne and try to give an account for your life? I know I don't, because I know I'm not going to stand up to it. There's no way I can make that work. I want to read Romans uh, 10, 9 through 13. If there's people in here, a lot of you people that have been Christians for a long time, you're very familiar with this verse. 
Because a lot of people, when, when they don't know Jesus, they talk a lot about, well, I'm not that good a person. Well, I got to get better. I got to get myself right before I come to church. You got it backwards. You got it backwards. If we could get ourselves right before we come to church, then Jesus wasn't necessary. We got to come to church and then get right. And we got to get to know the Lord and let him get us right. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait until we were better. He said, I'll help you get better. And, and, and it's not about what we do. It's about who we know, who we believe in. Becoming a Christian is simple. I didn't say it's easy being a Christian, but it's simple to become one. And we're going to read here what this is. It says that if you, if you confess your, with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, so just speaking out that Jesus is Lord, and you want him to be Lord of your life, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, didn't we talk about several times today that if God says something twice, pay attention. So let's keep going. It says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then he repeats it again. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, not most people, not some, not the few, proud, the whatever. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all it takes to become a Christian. Then let God do the rest of the work. Let God work in your life and make it happen. I'm going uh, to say a quick little prayer, and then we're going to close up with a little exercise. Um, but if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, just kind of in your heart pray along and just kind of give your life over to Christ. Don't sit in front of that white throne judgment. It's not a good place to be. Take the grace of Jesus and, and go to heaven with him on his coattails. Hang on tight to the coattails like the lady was bleeding for 13 years or however many years it was. You know, she touched his cloak. We'll grab a hold of that cloak and make sure we get in behind him because that's the only way we're getting into heaven. So let me pray real quick for you. Father, I just pray that you would uh, open our hearts, our minds, Lord, to you. If there's anyone in this room, Lord, that doesn't know you and isn't going to heaven to be with you, Lord, I pray that you tug on their heart right now. May they open their heart to you. May they just confess to you that you, you are Lord. May they really believe it in their heart. And may they ask that you would... Uh, let them in, and let them become a child of yours. Father, we just thank you for such a wonderful gift. And as we come up to Christmas in a few weeks, Lord, we're reminded of just how wonderful a gift it was. Lord, we thank you. We love you, Lord, and we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.